in the past couple of years, a, a lot of folks have been catapulted into virtual work. Not everyone was well prepared for that. Not everyone wanted that to happen. And many of us find ourselves in that place of ambiguity about what does the new normal of work look like? Will we be going back to an office? Will we continue to work in a distributed team? And what's best for us, depending on what we do and how we work? Do we like the office? Do we like being able to uh, roll out of bed and walk down the hall? How do we even think about combining these strategies for a hybrid workplace? In this episode, I'm joined by Robert Glazer of Acceleration Partners. He's an author, speaker, and he runs a company of about 200 folks that is fully distributed. Today, we are talking about his new book, How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, Simple and Effective Tips for Successful, Productive, and Empowered Remote Work. So whether you are running a company, working with a company, or a solopreneur, I hope that you will glean some great advice and some tips about how to thrive in the virtual workplace from our conversation today. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about Bob and his work, feel free to head to robertglazer.com. That's G-L-A-Z-E-R. And we will put the links to some of the information and resources that we talk about in the show notes. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. It's really good to have you back on the podcast and to talk with you about this conversation around how to thrive in a virtual workplace. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm glad I made the cut. And it's a, uh, it's a hard conversation to avoid these days. Right. Everybody's has had to go virtual, but now we are faced with the choice of whether to stay virtual. And so I know a lot of companies are asking these questions around, okay, it's becoming safer and safer to return to the workplace in person, but do we want to? So as you think about that question, or as you walk with people who are thinking about that question, what are the key considerations that you think are important as, as employers are considering? Do we go back in person or not? So a couple of things. I don't think there is a right or a wrong answer. And I think there are definitely certain types of businesses where in person is much more important. I think there are others like knowledge workers or consulting where it's not as relevant to the business itself. Um, I actually think what is most, there was a study recently from McKinsey that said 40% of companies haven't really decided and 30% have made their communication so vague that people don't know what the policy is. And if you're hiring today and seeing this hiring market and you've been avoiding putting a stake in the ground, I think that's the biggest problem of not saying to employees, here's our strategy, take your pain if that's not what a bunch of people want and, and sort of move or else you may end up upsetting everyone. So I, I think we're at the point now where people want to know from their companies and from their leaders, like what they're doing, what they're going back to. And that is most important. I think you'd be successful with either strategy, like in-person, hybrid, fully remote. It's got to just support your business and it's got to be well executed. Understand though, that I think <laughs> with all of that said, 
the supply and demand equation has changed a little bit, probably accelerated five years. Like the amount of people looking for strict five-day-a-week in-person rigid work is is probably dwindling quickly. So if that's the way you want to go or the business, just understand your labor pool may be lower. Yeah, I feel like many people have had their eyes opened to the benefits and some of the drawbacks, but certainly the benefits of a remote work environment. And, you know, a, a lot of people I've spoken with don't want to go back. They don't want to go back to the office. Yeah, they got their work done. The company did well. You know, they see like Goldman Sachs calling it an aberration and some terrible thing that we need to fix. And then having record earnings three weeks later, which just seems a little, a little awkward. So, I, yeah. And look, last year was not a great year to use flexibility. I think it's more about flexibility than, than remote work or otherwise. And look, it can even depend on a day. I was talking to my literary uh, agent, the publisher, you know, and they were talking about what they were doing. And she's like, look, there, there are some days when we have team meetings, when we're deciding, like if we're going to buy a book and we're debating and all that, like, and that's a really important in-person meeting. There are other days when I have to edit the author's book for five hours, like quietly, like I don't really need to go into the office to lock myself in a room and edit the book quietly. So I, this is the, I think where people, I, I, to me, the flexibility element is is more important than the remote or, or not remote. So I spend, as you know, a lot of time thinking about mental health and how employers, you know, employees who are in relationships with each other can help optimize the likelihood that the people around them, that their team is as mentally well as possible. Of course, the caveat to that question is sort of understanding that mental health is very complicated and work is not the only component that sort of derives how well someone is. But one of the challenges that I've um, heard a lot about with remote work is the challenge of not having eyes on someone. Someone may not be doing well, but there's not a sense of like seeing them regularly or every day and having a sense of like, oh, you really, you look tired or you, you're appearing in a way that's really inconsistent with how you normally show up. So as we think about moving forward in remote work contexts, how do you think about how to how to check in and make sure that people are doing well when you can't see them in person. Yeah, look, you should have a cadence. Also, that stuff tends to show up in performance. Like, I, I, I don't want to flip this around, but I think one of the things in remote work is people have to manage outcomes and not inputs. It's not about how many hours were you sitting in a chair. Otherwise, it's, it's how's your work getting done. And I think those things tend to show up initially in sort of performance or things not getting done right or well. And then you dig in, you find out, some stuff is going on. So I kind of think if you're measuring the right things, like if you also in your organization, you're measuring like engagement levels and stuff like we do on a monthly basis, like these should be data points. You should also be checking in with an employee, even, you know, Zoom, putting eyes on them. Uh, I, I mean, I think those are all pieces of the puzzle. Look, some people can come to the office every day and be a mess and be good at hiding it. But typically, you either create the open environment where they tell you these things in advance or they end up telling you these things. Like I can't tell you the number of times when we dig in where someone's performance is really falling off or something seems out of whack and then you find out that something is going on that is impacting their performance. Can you say a little bit more about about data, about the things that you would measure in a workplace that would let you know how someone is performing, how engaged they are, how well they're doing? Yeah. So look, we, we understand this in sales. If I give you salesperson A and salesperson A makes 10 calls a day and sells $10,000 and salesperson B makes 100 calls a day and sells 
$2,000, you never reward salesperson B more than salesperson A, right? I, I, I think we've learned to measure inputs, which also aren't good versus saying, look, here are the indicators, right? And so it's clear in sales. If you're client service, maybe it's the client performance is X or the amount of issues that have to be escalated or Y or, you know, projects that are on time and delivered with satisfaction or like it, it is just this change towards metrics that are more outcome oriented. So it's sort of the desert island test. If I was to say like, all right, Sherry, like how, if I can't see you for a week, like what can I get to know that you're getting the outcomes that are important? And frankly, I think all businesses should be organized this way. I think in some ways, remote work has, has shown some best practices that, that, that businesses had that were foundational that actually made their transition to remote work better. I think companies that had a good culture, good communication, trust, the right metric, all of those switched over pretty well. The ones that didn't, I struggled much more. So when you talk about inputs, right, that's like hours in the chair, hours on the screen. Hours in the chair, measuring your mouse movements, like, you know, which people are doing, and then they're buying mouse movers. Like, so I would say, like, you're in this game with your employees, you've both lost, right? Like, this is not a, this is not a game you want. Yeah, so anything that, that doesn't tie to, to the outcome or the goal, but ties to how much work you're putting into it. Are there any inputs that are worth measuring? I, I think you should track inputs because if you're not getting the right, so, so let's go back to the sales example. Someone once said to me, a coach said, look, your Tesla has a million indicators, but 90% of the time you're looking at two things like, well, maybe not in Tesla, but, but the, the gas tank and the spinometer, right? And then if you have a problem, then there are all these diagnostic things. So like for a salesperson, I think you want to, them to keep their call logs and their things and their otherwise, but you're ultimately measuring the performance. But if the performance is not there, we're going to dig in and Sherry, I'm going to say, well, Sherry, of course you can't be selling. You can't make two calls a day and do this, or you're not making the right calls. Or, or, or So to me, that's the like background data that you would dive into, but that's the diagnostic of like, once you find out that there's a problem with the out outcome. So for example, like, you know, in a client service escalation issue, you know, if you figure out why all this stuff has to escalate it, you dig in and you say, well, look, you're copied on every email. So clearly it's drowning you and all this stuff. So clearly you can't take on any more clients. So we're having these problems, but like the good people tend to figure that stuff out. So, so I do think those input metrics are sort of a second level diagnostic tool, but I wouldn't use them as a measure of success. I would use them as a measure of like trying to figure out what's working and not working, driving towards the success outcome. So you have them in the background and they help you unpack any potential issues, but they aren't the end goal in themselves or in itself. They're not the end goal, yeah. right? The reason you want someone to make a hundred calls is to have sales, right? That's not to make a hundred calls. But if you realize there aren't sales and then you dig in, then you see they're just not doing the work. Then you've got two problems versus they're, they're doing the work and they're not getting the result. What's your experience with building meaningful relationships and connections either between employees or between an employer and an employee in a, in a sort of virtual world? Yeah, look, I, I have this note that I started years ago called Friday Forward. It started in my company. It's grown beyond it. It goes to a couple hundred thousand people in 60 countries each week. I get page-long, heartfelt letters from people in other countries that I've never met before that have read these notes, and it made an impact or helped them that week or otherwise. So 
in-person connection, deeply important, but clearly we are able to connect in different ways. And so, you know, again, we try to use video, like check in with people. There, there's some people that I've worked with, I've never met now for two years over video that I feel like I know them like incredibly well. You know, we'll be in situations where there's laughter or vulnerability or otherwise, but we also, we come together, we do meetings, we do retreats. And I think that, you know, that is actually really important. We actually try to use that time to get depth. You could pass someone in the office and never have a meaningful discussion with them in, in nine months. So I actually think the more vulnerability and authenticity you can create, even in a virtual situation, you will have those sort of connections. Like we've, we, we had some people we hired again. I had, you know, I've worked with them for a year. I feel like I know them well, I, but I, I met them in person for the first time recently. And that rings really true with my experience. You know, I have these really connected consultative relationships with founders all over the world, many of whom I've never met in person, but I know the name of their dog that died when they were seven. <laughs> yeah, if you saw them, you'd probably give them a big hug. Like, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. I, you, you have that relationship. And sometimes yeah. when I meet them, the first thing I think is like, wow, you're much taller than I thought. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Height's always the number one, like, Zoom to not Zoom misperception. Yeah. I, 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 can't, I don't know whether you're 5'10 or 5'1. It could be anywhere in between. Yep. Who knows? We'll just let it be a mystery. <laughs> So talking a little bit more about retreats, like I love that sense of having a rhythm of coming together in person for a little bit of playfulness and deeper connection. But what's your what's your best practice sort of strategy for making a retreat meaningful? Because obviously they can be extraordinarily expensive. It's a big investment for our company. They're, they're incredibly, they cover more than an office would, you know. Absolutely. And I, you know, a lot of the companies I work with have people all over the world. So they're flying people in from Asia, from Central and South America. So how do you make that time useful? What's the, what's the recipe of kind of work to play, to connection, to outcomes? Yeah. So, so we've done this for a while and tried it. And so we keep tweaking the formula, but I, but I actually think you want to do stuff that you couldn't have done otherwise. So there's some high level, make sure we reestablish the vision where we're going in a company. We're all on the same page, but then there's a lot of like, there's learning, there's teamwork, there's impact speakers, you know, that really just make a, like something we want everyone to learn together, have an experience. We either we've done scavenger hunts in the past, other stuff, employees give TED talks, share things that are important to them. Uh, we do, we have an award ceremony. So we, we actually used to, it used to be like a five hour company meeting. And that was sort of terrible to bring people together. They, they, we, we keep the like company business stuff light. Like to me, this is a recalibration, like celebrate what you did, reaffirm where you're going, focus on team building, interaction, learning, you know, and really like impactful experiences that people remember six to nine months later. So keep it fairly light and fairly celebratory success oriented. Light in terms of like, I actually think some of it's heavy. Like some of the speakers we've had have had anyone in tears, like including me after speaking, but, but that got people again to connect personally. But I think it's light on just like corporate information, right? I, I think it should be, this should be the 10,000 foot, view for people, not, not the thousand foot view. Like that's what your weekly meetings for and your operational cadence and all that stuff are for. You don't want to bring a bunch of people together, read off a bunch of numbers to them. Or look at slides for hours and hours on end. Yeah. We, we, nothing's more than 30 or 40 minutes. Like we did a case study as a group, again, just as much interactivity as possible. And to the extent that people are speaking, they're presenting a future vision or what we accomplished or something that's very high level meant to sort of get people excited. 
Do you have an attachment to the word play as it relates to your company? Yeah, I think it's connect and play, right? I think those are probably the two key things. You know, and some of the play stuff is is about connection or strategizing together. Like it, we did something with a firm. It was like pretty intense, like almost like basic military training, like in groups, <laughs> you know, with, with a group. And you had to get through these obstacles and stuff, right? So it was play, but it was also strategy and, and thought. So, you know, just playing a basketball game probably won't create as much of that like you want the fun, but you also want the the connection. This is your chance to, if we just had a five and five basketball game, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to know more about Sherry at the end of the basketball game than the beginning of the basketball, other than like, she's got a killer jump shot. Yeah. Or she's <laughs> terrible at basketball. <laughs> my basketball career ended when I was 15 and got knocked over and broke my front teeth. And I was like, nah, I think I'm done with this. <laughs> then you're out. Yeah. So maybe you were, maybe you were five eleven. I could be, you'd never know. Yeah. You've been running a remote company for over 10 years. Do I have that right? It's been a while. Do you remember what it was like to be new at it, to be new at the remote work thing? Yeah, look, the difference was we had to hide it. <laughs> so it was secret. This is before Zoom. This is, you know, 10, 13 years ago, we're working with blue chip clients, like big brands, and like no one was doing this. And so we had to literally try to like, pretend it wasn't the case. And that's even harder. I think today now you got cloud, you got Zoom, you got tools, you got virtual events, you got general societal acceptance. These are all really different conditions. So I, I think we, we we paid our dues to make it easier for other people. But yeah, I think I think you learn you just realize certain things that you could get away with in, in person that you can't like you can't have people start work and not have an onboarding program. Versus in a company, you can be like, oh, you're starting today. Um, why don't you follow Steve around and shadow Steve? And, and like, that's not a good thing either. It's just you can you can get away with it. There are just some nuances. There's some things that work better. There's some things that don't work. We still struggle these days on how to like handle like departures because we some you know we're a 200 person company now. Someone's leaving. They can't really walk around the office and say goodbye to a lot of people. And also then they don't want to pick up the phone and call 30 people. So a lot of people won't know they're leaving and then they're kind of surprised. And we haven't just figured out an answer for that. We just, the problem as an organization is you can't announce everyone that's leaving and say really nice things about some and then others, because then it makes it really clear that some people are leaving on good terms or bad terms or we're fired or not fired. Like people don't see the other side of this. So that people want us to like broadcast who's leaving and why and when and I'm like, that's kind of up to them and their team. And they're like, that is an example of something that's just really harder to navigate because you might be walking around and I'm like, Oh, it's Sherry's last day. And so everyone wants to say goodbye to Sherry. Like you don't get that office effect on that. There's no cake. There's no cake. And look, the team can have a cake and they do. But I, as I said to someone on my team, and I'm honest, like, look, we're trying a solution. I'm like, I haven't seen a company where HR announces everyone who's leaving to the whole company. Like that's just not a, we, we, we put it in a newsletter. We, we say hey, congrats to part of our alumni, but, but there's some stuff that employees don't realize too around you. you there's some things where you just have to be very neutral on because there's HR implications, right? Like I can't thank you for all your service, say all the stuff to the company. And then the next person not say anything. It'll be like, what? Well, clearly like that wasn't a good situation. So we just try to treat everyone leaving the same way. Like, nicely respectfully like part of our alumni i'm not throwing celebrations for employees leaving but i but i'm not not scarlet lettering anyone either like we're pretty open about it we're like if you want to move on that that's awesome if your team wants to 
have an event for you or something like that, great too. It's just not going to be top down from a 200 person company. I think the comings and goings are hard. I mean, that's where the awkwardness of, okay, here's a new person who suddenly pops into a Zoom meeting and there's there's not that sense of of welcoming and connecting like there might be in person where there's somebody who says, hey, welcome, thank you for coming. Right, they were walking around the first day and someone's walking you. Every- I, I think it's the same problem. On the, I think coming in and coming out are harder because where there would be some natural group conversations, like they actually have to be deliberate and people don't want their last day to be 30 minute, 30, sure. 30 minute goodbye calls all day, right? It, That's it, exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. Do, have you found some best practices that help with the coming and going? We just have a simple route. So when everyone comes in, uh, we have them actually to the all company call everyone. They say the name, where they're coming from, their location, and then something we would know about them from their resume. So just a little vulnerability, a little bit of fun. And then I don't know what the teams do, but that's what we do on a company level. And then every month on our uh, newsletter, we do announce everyone that left and, you know, it's after the fact. And we really look to our teams to, to kind of manage the in-between. And obviously this stuff is very different when you have 20 employees or 200 and you may even need to change it and people don't like change. <laughs> so they want change, but they don't like change. So when you say, look, we, yes, we could announce every employee, like, look, we do promotions on every call, but last call we had 26 promotions. Like it was actually, it went from something nice to being like a little too much. So these changes are just necessity. Changes is necessity as you grow your business. People don't like to give up the old tradition, but you often, kind of have to, or because it just doesn't work anymore. But it seems like one of the overarching takeaways, whether it's 200 person company or even a team of six is having that thought through intentional, consistent rhythm of communication. Yeah. And then there's legal and all this stuff. You just want consistency, right? From all these things. And one of the principles in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we announced these on each week's promotions are on the biweekly calls. These are on the monthly call. Like, yeah, everything just falls into a cadence and has a pattern. And, and I think like one of our core values is own it. Top down stuff goes both ways. We don't want to be a top down company. So when people say, can we do this? Can, the answer is always yes. Like, go ahead and go ahead and do it. But we're not going to. The key word being you, like you. Yeah. I would say the most dangerous word is someone should do something like, like, look, it's usually a manager's job to celebrate their employee leaving. It's not HR's job. That's not, that's not what HR does. They're not the party planner. They're not the party planner. <laughs> I say with deep empathy for every HR professional who's listening and sort of in in a place where their job is not well understood. But yeah, you know, people feel like, again, I don't believe at this point, but get to your point, like someone could just jump in and they didn't know about it, you know, into the company. And then sometimes someone's gone and they just didn't know about it. And, and sometimes there's an assumption that there's something nefarious. Sometimes that person has a personal issue that they asked to go quietly and not to have it discussed. And this is why it's really hard to say, look, I know we want to do this thing differently and that thing differently. But like, here's why it's really safer and better for everyone to try to have a consistent way of doing it. So one of the words in the subtitle of your book is this, the word empowered. Talk to me about what what you mean when you think about an empowered workplace. Yeah, an empowered workplace, I think, has to come from values. Because I think if people understand the values, those replace rules, and they know kind of what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it. And they feel empowered to act within those decisions. So perfect example, you know, I share a story a lot about, I did the book about Southwest airlines and this passenger that they handled who had a medical emergency in her family. There was no 
playbook for that. Southwest has just been always really clear, like, here are our values, like, wow, our customers, amazing service, servants, heart, like, and that was the exact thing that those, those people did. So I think empowerment means saying, hey, here's the vision, here's the goals, here's the values. This is a high degree of trust. We trust that you're going to do, you are empowered, you have this freedom, but also here's what's expected of you and the outcomes that we're, that we're looking for. And, and empowerment really moves away from micromanagement to sort of accountability and expectations. Being a micromanager and having high expectations are not mutually exclusive. You can really be hands off and say, look, this is what I'm looking for. And this is what excellence looks like to me. That sense of clear outcomes, clear expectations. And are values something that's set from the top? 400%. You can, you can have values within your team and you could try to shelter a counterculture within your team. But I, I mean, unfortunately, as I've spoken on this, I've had some people come up at conferences and they're like, can I ask you a question? And I, can, I know what it is after like five seconds. And they're like, I, I love this, all the value stuff. Like, what do you do if you're like really on board for the value stuff as, as, as a leader but in a manager, but like the CEO and the exec team just aren't interested or aren't on the same page? I'm like, well, you either shield your team and do this other thing or you, you get a new job. Because like, again, you can have a, your own set of values within your team and do that. But I, I, this is something that really needs to be bought into and shared, I think, from, from top down if you're talking about true organizational values, not Dilbert things that are written on the wall, but, but real organizational values. And I think from, you know, from what I know of your work, that's one of those defining characteristics of leadership is that the leader is, is setting the values and communicating the values and holding the company to the values. Yeah. I mean, so top two things a leader can do is, is because again, that, that to me takes the place of tons of rules. The best leaders will tell you, uh, Gary Ridge, who I talked about in the book at WD40, he's like, anyone who makes a decision based on one or more of our company core values is 100% safe all the time. Like, how many people would say that? <laughs> like, that we've got, you make a decision under one or more of these values, like, we got your back, you're good. That's why you need to be really careful with their values. I, I don't do a lot of company core value work. People, like, ask me a lot of advice, and they'll be like, what do you think of this value? Do whatever it takes. I'm like, be really careful with that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I can get Machiavellian quick. <laughs> and I've seen that a couple of times where like, are you really comfortable if someone comes to you and that's what they've done? So, I think one of the challenges that I've seen in, in my work with distributed companies in particular is the challenge of getting everyone on the same page and bringing kind of consensus through the ranks and the the different level of pressure maybe that that puts on the CEO or the leader to really define those values very clearly. And it's not a process of consensus. It's that top-down process. And I get the sense in some companies that are distributed that there's a little bit more of a like, come on, y'all, we're going together. Like, let's talk about this together. We want to generate a sense of belonging and consensus that leaves sometimes the leader, the person at the top in a, in a more ambiguous place. Yeah. Look, your company is 20 people. You can make a lot of people happy. 40, most. By the time you get to 100, you will always be pissing off five people out of 100, right? So the key is which ones do you want to be upsetting and which ones? Because people come to us all the time and, and, and someone will say, 
we should do this and I want that and like blah, blah, blah. And you're like, that is the exact thing that the other 95% of the people do not want. So do I want to change the other 95% of the people or, or do we need, is this not the right company for you to be at? Because I, you have to be careful of the vocal minority and we're, we're starting to run into that. And we talk about that as a leadership team. We've always been very responsive to feedback. And I think sometimes we get a little too focused on the, on the vocal minority. But yeah, I, look, I think like anything, a good leader asks for input and feedback, but then they make decisions, right? So if you're, if you're building out those set of values, they have to be based on your best employees and otherwise and get people's impact and feedback. But if you try to get consensus on everything, like it will be watered down. Like, like values are a definitive point of view. And that usually comes from a leader or a leadership team or someone who has that viewpoint. It's not a mesh of a bunch of views to where it doesn't say anything. That's the danger. Is that sense of it getting watered down because there's been too much input? Yeah, because it's not something I can stand on the soapbox and get upset about and say, we're going to go and blindness, you know, which is, again, a, that's not core values, core values, but that's like a vision, right? Strong business. And then someone else is like, yeah, but what about this? Or what about that? Like, I was looking at this thing coming out called Rivian. It's an electric car and truck, pickup truck coming out later this year. And I was really looking at their website and at their branding. And this is they're like kind of Land Rovers, but they're all battery. And they're like, look, we believe in play, but we believe that way people are consuming now is literally like reaching an end and like we have to save the world. And so our company is about saving the world without compromising on like, this is not the people who want to drive a Prius, right? This is the people who want to drive a Land Rover, but have it get. And I just was actually thinking like, it was such a definitive point of view and such a strong point of view. Like this company has to exist because We've got to get off fossil fuels, and we know that people want to do all this stuff that they love to do with their current cars. And and I actually was struck by like that this is a this company has a deep purpose that is clearly showing through, and I'm sure a lot of that is from the founder. And it's not for everyone, right? It knows not its niche, it knows who it's going after, and it's unapologetic in defining that. And, right, but he believes, some people would say everyone should drive a Prius, right, because that's the best thing you could possibly do. But I think he believes, and I think this has been proven, when you tell people to just do something that's utilitarian, it's very hard to get them to do that. If you tell them that there's the, not a compromise, like BMW always said they would not make an electric car until it was like a BMW, right? So, so their belief is like, we think you can do more good by having your cake and eating it too, not trying to tell people to do good. And look, companies may have different approaches on theirs, but I think theirs is really clear. And I think they think they can win over a big part of the market segment with that. It's not watered down. It's not trying to be someone else's. Look, there are many different messages around environmental, environmental and sustainability. They have a very specific message around it. Right. The person who wants to have fun, go off-roading and... Save the world. Yeah. Save the world. <laughs> not use gas. Well, you know, it's interesting your place in this conversation because you obviously, you run a company, 200 employees or so, and you're also spending a lot of time talking with other companies. As you were sitting down to write this book, what did you learn? What were your big like, oh, I hadn't thought about that before, even though you've been doing this yourself for quite a while? Yeah. One of the things that came up time and time again from a CEO of a 17,000 person company and, and smaller was how democratizing it was for them to have all uh, gone virtual. 
And like the CEO was like, look, I'm the same size square in the meeting as everyone else. The person in that place has no advantage of the in office or out of office. And a lot of them were trying to like, it like flatten their organization. And so they were consciously thinking about that and going forward and how do they, they, they like that. So how do they retain that sort of that aspect that they got out of remote work? The equal space in the blocks. Yeah, just that the CEO, anyone could grab the CEO, like they also, people weren't traveling. Anyone could grab the CEO's time for five minutes, right? He didn't have a big corner office. He wasn't available. Everyone was available and everyone sort of like took up the same space or, you know, meta- metaphorically like was not more important than than the other. So they just, it was really democratizing. They felt across countries, across divisions, across like levels of hierarchy, uh, like everyone was on a level playing field. Yeah, that's so interesting when we think about how the built environments of our offices often, you know, connote this sort of sense of hierarchy and power. The corner office with the administrative assistant who sits in front and sort of is the posted guard. Nobody can just walk in. It's their structure that sort of guards the hierarchy and how different that is when everyone's essentially in their home in some way and everybody's cat is misbehaving kind of at the same, same rate. Right. It's, it's, human, it's humanizing, right? When you're, you're kids, but, but look, this gets to my fear of how some people do hybrid work and companies, you know, are trying to extend it. We're all on the same page of our organization. So everyone's on this is on that level playing field, but you know, we've seen it even in our industry where people, uh, a California based team, let someone from Virginia work remotely. Like I'm not sure they're going to feel on the same page they're on Zoom and everyone else is in the meeting room. Like, I think I think a lot of this hybrid work is going to get messy because companies haven't been explicit and there's going to be some us and them stuff that comes out of it. Absolutely. I think one of the other messinesses is, is that it's all overlapping, right? Just when you think about the individual well-being, like when do you go to work and when are you home? What parameters do you have around these different parts of you and your identity? And how do you set those up well and protect them well so that you can thrive in all of these different components of your life? And that has gotten, I think, really, really smushy with this sudden transition to remote work. So that was in the book, but I would have told you that was our biggest thing. Boundaries. I I think the biggest misperception so, so ironically, 10 years ago, you said, oh, Sherry's working from home. People are like, oh, yeah, Sherry's working from home. She's like taking care of her kids and running errands and, you know, all that stuff, like not working. What they actually have seen is that the people working from home have a harder time drawing work boundaries than personal boundaries. And I was saying the irony was because that's probably what it looked like last year for most people, where their kids literally were in the background and they were trying to have school and all that stuff. That is not a normal remote environment. But a lot of data shows that people work longer and more working from home because there isn't that walking out of the office. So, you know, we talk a lot about that in the book about recreating those boundaries because I think they're essential. I think it's even like even if you're stuck in an apartment, you were stuck in a studio, you should have your work corner. And that should be like, this is like, you know, Clark Kent and Superman, like you're, you're working and you go, you don't bring it to bed. Like then you get up and have dinner and go to bed or else you're just sort of blowing down all the barriers in your living space. Absolutely. That's something that I talk with people about all the time is having these context cues that tell you in your environment, this is my work time. This is my time with my children. This is my time to be human. This is my time, you know, in my bed with my partner and my laptop is not part of that equation, right? Laptop should not be in your bed. In, in, in fact, the number one thing I have seen in a lot of contexts is like, 
Your cell phone should be downstairs and plugged in an hour before bed, an hour when you wake up. If your cell phone is is on your night table and you grab it when you roll out of bed and you see work emails, that is like someone grabbed you out of bed and threw you in the office. Like, boom, your day is starting. Like, I, I'm a big believer in the morning routine. Don't turn on the phone. Look, for those of us that aren't in emergency medicine, like no one died, nothing is that urgent. Like the pissed off client at 11 o'clock last night is just gonna make us, this is why I also, an hour before bed, because I see some email, like, look, I'm a CEO. Like I, there was an email today I got at two o'clock in the afternoon about someone who said some disparaging stuff about our company uh, and they said it with ill intent, right? So, so I have to deal with that. It's not the end of the world. I, I was swearing and pissed off for five minutes and then I calmed down. But if I saw that at 11 o'clock at night, I'd probably lose a whole night of sleep. Still nothing I can do about it. Still have to stew about it. Still will be a, like a thoughtful follow-up response a couple of days later. But that is why I think that, you know, that hour before bed, the phone should be downstairs. You should not be engaged in that stuff. An hour when you wake up, you should read the paper, do what you want to do. And then when you turn that stuff on, it's like you open the doors and you're in the office. Yeah, that segmentation, I think, is really important and really helpful. Yeah, I, I, what, that, that is what people need the most. The other thing, which will be less of an issue after COVID, uh, but I've been hard working with home for years, and, and, and so I juggle with this and my wife, is that it's also a signal to other people. Some people see you around and they think you're available. You know, they don't realize you're closing a million-dollar client and they're like, around the room and talking to you. So, so that's also important, too. Like, hey, I'm, when I'm in my work zone, like, do not disturb. Like, if I'm in the kitchen, like, fair, fair game. Absolutely. And that's something that my husband and I had to work out very early on in our marriage where he was working from home as an entrepreneur and I was going into a, a hospital or a clinic to work. And I would think like, oh, you can totally talk to the window guy, like you're home, right? Like certainly you can just do some of those household things. It's not a big deal. And of course it is a really big deal because that divided attention and that distraction becomes a thing. So I probably can't do it here, but I, I see I've, I've gotten good at like, so, so the entrance to this room is here. Like, how, how, how do you do the stop sign without anyone seeing it, you know, that you're on the screen with? Like, no, leave now, later. Yeah. The, the, the shake, yeah, the hand. So I'm very excited that this book is out in the world. And I think that it provides a lot of really practical guidance, both for people who are working or considering working in a virtual environment and for people who are leading those teams. And so it's a great asset and resource for folks. So thanks for writing it. Yeah, I've I, uh, been really thrilled with the response, I think, both for employees trying to navigate through this. And like I said, I think my thing to any company leader is if you, you're past due for putting a flag in the ground and letting your employees know what back to work looks like at your organization. Right. What to expect. We're all grateful for some clarity after a couple of years of no clarity. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. And we'll put the uh, link to the book in the show notes. People can track it down. And obviously lots of great information that you are putting out on a consistent basis in your Friday Forward email, which I am a subscriber to, as well as uh, lots of other uh, books and, and resources that you've made available. So thank you for your work and the way that you're sharing it. It's a great asset. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And uh, we'll We'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> do it again soon when your next book comes out. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. 
You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.